If Jesus were physically present on planet Earth today and living in your town, would you want to invite him to your party? Most of us have the idea that all Jesus did was pray, heal sick people, and spend time teaching his disciples. Certainly not the life of the party. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he speaks with us about what to do when the wine runs out. It's party time, and you want to have a big celebration. In other words, you want to have a good time, you want to have lots of laughter, you want people to relax, and so you shouldn't say you as a husband, you're probably like me, it's your wife that probably gets out the notebook and starts jotting down the guest list. Who's going to be on your list? Who do you want to invite? It's holiday time. It's the time to celebrate. You want a lot of laughs. You want a lot of good times. Who are you going to invite? Think about your list. Okay, then I want to ask you this. If Jesus was alive on planet Earth, if Jesus were alive on planet Earth physically, he was physically present, would you want him to come? Would you invite him to come? I want you to be really honest about that question because your response to that question will give you a lot of insight into what your concept of Jesus Christ really is. You see, one of the biggest con jobs that Satan does on us is that somehow if we bring Jesus Christ into our lives, if we really include him, if we make him a part of our celebrations, of our parties, of our joyous times with friends, that somehow, somehow, it'll ruin it all. In fact, I know that in all your families, you've all had the experience of when dad suddenly gets super religious and it's time to have quiet time and so he gets out the Bible and all the kids are going, oh, brother. Or you're having a, a really good time just interacting and everyone's laughing, telling jokes. And every, all of a sudden somebody says, well, let's get spiritual. You know, let's share spiritually. And all of a sudden everybody gets serious. The frowns come because now it's religious time, right? In fact, there's a whole lot of people that have a whole lot of trouble with our church because the kids just don't think this place is sacred enough. They shoot baskets in this place. They run around in this place. They come here on Sunday morning and the crazy little hucksters are still totally irreverent. Because you know if you want to worship the Lord, it's really important to get serious and to frown and to be quiet. And then we're going to be holy. You see, that's a very, very important part of, our, of all of our lives. And by the way, we, re we are really into that scene. You see, if we get really, really quiet and we get the atmosphere just right, we can get strongly into that scene. You know why? Because, you see, if you can make that scene, if you can make that religious worship scene different enough, if you can make it mysterious enough, if you can get it divorced enough from everyday life, then you don't have to worry so much about Jesus invading every day. And you don't have to really grapple with him. You don't have to really work with what's going on inside. You see, you can play Jesus Christ then. You can play church. You can play worship. 
And what I want to share with you is that veneer, that idea that somehow we lock him up, we go to special places to be with him, we act totally different when we're around him. All of those ideas will not come to grips with what we talked about a few weeks ago about overcoming passions. It's not going to hold together your marriages. It's not going to bring you the deep-seated, rich joy of having a genuine relationship with Christ. And I just want to share with you that a lot of life has gone over the dam in my own life. And I've spent hours and hours and hours interacting with people. And I don't want the evangelical sham. I don't want to have a nice pretend time here Sunday morning. I don't want to have a nice pretend church. I want reality. And the more that I study the Word of God, the more that I see a beautiful Savior who meets the deepest aches in my soul. Now those aches are not going to go totally away until I go home to be with Him because He doesn't want me to ever forget that right now I'm still living in a motel. I'm not home yet. No matter how comfortable it might get, I'm just not going to be totally at home and there's going to be an ache in my soul because I was built to go home. So don't feel badly if you're just never quite all the way happy. You're never just glimpses, but not totally. Don't get uptight about that. That's part of being on planet Earth because the Lord wants you to be longing to go home. Things aren't right yet. Things aren't complete yet. They're not perfect yet. And yet in saying all that, there can still be tremendous intimacy, even though we see through a glass darkly. Let's go back to John chapter 2. We're studying three days in the life of the Messiah. You might not have realized that, but John begins the story of Jesus by giving us three cameo days, you might say, in the life of Christ. On the first day, John the Baptist calls him out, and two of John's disciples go and start to follow Jesus. And last week, the essence of our message was, come and see Jesus. Come and spend some time with him. And then go and show what you've learned with others. Think of all your testimonies, all your evangelism as being, come and see Jesus, go and show him. As we move into chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, on the third day, so we're into the third day, three days in the life of Jesus, now we're on the third day. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, that's all introductory material, but it confronts me with this idea. Jesus of Nazareth was invited to a wedding. Now, how many of you have ever been to a Jewish wedding? You've seen Yentl, you've seen Filler on the Roof. Now, we've been to some situations like this, but I've often been in hotels. This has happened repeatedly to me because Jewish people back in the East Coast often have weddings in hotels. And you always know there's a Jewish wedding in the hotel because you're trying to have a nice, quiet dinner in the, in the hotel restaurant. And all of a sudden you hear this raucous, loud, teasing, laughing. There's music. Jewish people are not quiet people usually. They are outgoing people. That's why almost all of them are the leading entertainers. Just look across the entertainment field. And it's filled with, with open, joyous communicative Jewish people. So a Jewish wedding is not exactly sedate, solemn time. 
It is a time. All their relatives come out. I mean, Uncle Samuel, Uncle Isaiah, Uncle Jacob. Everybody comes. And they've got this great big party. There's dancing. There's celebration. I think some of the biggest feel of that that Mary and I ever had was one time when we were in Netanya. It was a Friday night. They shut down the streets, put barricades up so you couldn't drive around. And everybody and his brother came out. I mean, just everybody came out. And they were singing, they were dancing, there was folk dancing going on, there was food everywhere, there was music, and everybody just goes walking around just having a tremendous time. People weren't drunk, you know, people weren't cussing. It was just a joyous family celebration. Little tiny kids were just running hither and yon, getting this treat and that treat. It was a big celebration. That's the way a Jewish wedding was. Mothers, you get uptight about getting ready for one reception area, one reception time. In a Jewish wedding, you have to have seven days of feasting. The book of Judges presents that to us with Samson. You had to get ready to have all of your friends come, and they didn't just come for one shot. They came to stay with you for a week. And what I want you to realize is Jesus was invited to come to that wedding. You know why Jesus was invited to come to that wedding? He was over 30 by this time. Cana of Galilee is up in his hometown district. And people already knew that Jesus at a wedding would make that wedding a joyous, holy celebration. You see, you think of Jesus walking around Palestine, never blinking, never quite landing on the ground. You know, it's like da 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 da. Remember the theme from Jesus of Nazareth? Da da da. It's always, I mean, you know, here you have this guy. I mean, everything's slow motion. And every movie that tries to present a human Jesus that has humanity. They either go into terrible sinfulness, like Jesus that they just put out, or they just make him so spiritual and so other, uh, of the other world that you almost picture him as going with a halo everywhere. The real Jesus of the Holy Scriptures was accused by his enemies of being a friend of sinners and a drunk and a glutton. Now, you don't have enemies accuse you and slander you. Because it wasn't true, obviously. Jesus was never drunk. But Jesus did go where the people were. And they were delighted to have him there. Sinners longed to be with him. That's his, that was his big trouble in the ministry. All the religious guys said, this guy can't possibly be the Son of God. He can't possibly be the Messiah. He's too normal. He doesn't float around. He doesn't wear special clothes. He wouldn't wear a three-piece suit to go and play softball if he were alive today like I've seen some ministers do. It's hard to play softball with a three-piece suit. It's also very hard to relate to teenagers with a three-piece suit on. Jesus was a person that they delighted in having him there. And there's something I want to just, I want to kick it as hard as I can. 
deep in your soul and deep in my soul, there's a desire, if I can get away from Jesus for a little bit, then I'll be happy. If I want to really have a good time, then I need to get away from spirituality for a little bit because that's where it will be fun. I want you to be honest. How many times have you ever walked away from Jesus in the name of having a good time and when you're all done you said, boy, that was tremendous. That was a tremendously happy, joyous time and I wish it could go on forever. But it's time to go back to Jesus and have a bad news time. Now, you don't do that. You pull that con just like I do. I'm going to go away from Jesus a little bit because I want to really have a good time. You get out there, you do something that you know Jesus wouldn't want you to do. You do something that you know Jesus isn't happy with you doing it. And you do it, and as soon as you do it, you feel... And then you say, then you get real spiritual, I'll never do it again. I've learned my lesson. Happiness is found with Jesus. Till the next time, Satan conned you and you run away from him again. Not that you can get away from him, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay? The fact that Jesus was invited to a wedding should tell every one of you, if you want to have a good time, include Jesus. You know, it says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when we talked about the prison crusade before we went out, I was, at a, I was sitting at a table with about three guys. The first-year counselors were in their meeting, and those of us that had already been on a crusade didn't have to go to a meeting, so we were sitting in a restaurant. If people would have watched us, most people were just running in and out. But as I look around the room, every once in a while people would look at us, and I know what they were thinking. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. These Christians again, they've got to be drinking. You know why? Because we would be rolling. In fact, you look around these guys, the next night they come back after witnessing in a prison. After witnessing in a prison, you've got to get really serious after witnessing in a prison all day long, right? You know what guys do after they get done witnessing in a prison? They come back and they roll in laughter for about two hours straight. It's a release of tension. But also what the filling of the Holy Spirit does is it makes you almost look like you're drunk, but you're not. You see, there's some of you, in order to really have fun, to really relax, you've got to drink a little bit. You know why? Because you're not controlled with the Spirit. If you're controlled by the Spirit, you'll be able to laugh. You'll be able to just split your sides. You'll be able to tease. You'll be able to rejoice. And it will be totally free. It won't cost you a dime because it won't have to be artificial. Because Jesus is the author of laughter, of happiness, of joy. He is a man of sorrows. But the reason he's a man of sorrows is because of his wrestling with sin. Deep within his personality, his heart is joy forevermore. Heaven is not going to be a place of solemnity and sorrow and tears. All the tears will be wiped away. It'll be celebration and praise. And from the youngest person in this room to the oldest person, I want you to realize that Jesus is the author of happiness. I want to bring something else out. In our modern society, this miracle probably would have never taken place. You know why? You know why this miracle would have never taken place? Because Jesus wasn't related to this girl as far as I know. Now, he might have been a distant relative. I'm not sure. 
But there's no evidence in this text that Jesus was related to whoever got married. And so this story could never happen because nobody goes to weddings unless you're related. I want to say that again. Do you hear what I just said? Nobody goes to weddings unless you're related. You see, we have lost what it means for a whole community of people to go and celebrate it. And I know why. There's some of you that sit there and go, why should I go? It's a bunch of baloney. They'll be divorced in a year or so. They'll be divorced in two or three. That doesn't mean anything anymore. Some of you men say, well, I'm not into that. I don't like ceremony. I'd rather sit home and watch a video. I understand where you're coming from. I have those feelings. So do you. But I want to share something with you. We're losing something very, very precious. We're losing family. We're losing extended families. We're losing communities. And Jesus doesn't want us to let it go too easily. It's very important to go and celebrate. It's very important to believe. Listen, I know more about the pits of marriage than you would ever imagine. Most of you would probably get sick to your stomach if you listen to what I have to listen to day in and day out. So don't tell me you're cynical. Because I am not. I am more excited and more believing in the reality of what marriage can be in Christ and what a family can be and what extended families can be. So don't you tell me you're hurt and you're going to pull into your little shell like a turtle and you're not going to be vulnerable again because you've lost all your belief. Because if you do, you'll never celebrate the marriage of Cain of Galilee. You see, Jesus believed in marriage. And he believed in going and sharing in a young person's life and having a big celebration and having that solidarity with them and encouraging them. And we need to do it as well. There needs to be honesty. There needs to be integrity. But there also needs to be a celebration. Think about it. Do you include Christ in your parties? If not, why not? And think deeply about what you really believe about him. Do you take the time to go and celebrate with celebrations? Weddings are important. Anniversaries are important. Those are important times. You need to learn to come out and celebrate and share. You're going to miss some of the greatest moments in life. I don't want you to feel guilty, but I want you to remember what you miss. You got to keep hanging in there. You got to go to weddings. You got to keep going to parties. You got to celebrate with Christ. The second thing I want you to see is the wedding crisis. The wine ran out. Now, for a Jew, that is big time trouble for the wine to run out. And you've got to understand something cultural. Every alcoholic that I've ever worked with knows John too. And every rebellious teenager that was drinking six-packs in the parking lot downtown Midlothian, they all know John too. 
Well, Jesus turned the water to wine. Also, I have heard upteen sermons on how Jesus turned water to grape juice. What I want to share with you from the depths of my soul, if that's what you're into, on both sides, you're missing the whole point of John 2. You see, if you think that a Jewish audience would even think about whether or not this was real wine or not, you don't know Jews very well. You see, when you go to be with Jewish people and you have a meal, if it's a Sabbath meal, they're going to pass around a cup of wine. And you have just a teeny-weeny sip. And you express and you say, thank you, Lord, for the gift of the, of the vine. And people don't keel off the chair and drunk as a skunk because it's a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. And I want to share something very, very hard. Do you know the groups that have the highest incidence of alcoholism? It's the groups that scream from the time the kids are little bitsy kids, thou shalt not ever touch a drop of alcohol because it's intrinsically evil. And if you don't ever drink it, you'll be totally safe. And every kid gets to be 13, and they say, I'm now going to do what I'm going to sneak it out. And I work with one person after another that plays that game. And they don't control it. They drink like crazy, and they pretend. Paul told us we're never going to overcome the flesh with rules and regulations. I want to warn you, if you've got alcoholism in your family, if you have any relatives at all that are alcoholics, it would be a very wise thing for you, not because it's intrinsically evil, but because there's a very good chance you could be very susceptible. It would be a very good thing for you to never touch it. And that's important to realize that. But you must also realize that there's going to be cultures, there's going to be people where to have wine at a wedding, it would not be of the devil. Now that's hard for some of you. From my background, that's hard. But if I'm going to be a biblical teacher, I've got to tell you what the scriptures really teach. And I want to share about the other side. If you're a teenager or you're a young man or woman, if you use that, to go and justify tanking down six cores. And you consistently do that. Or if there's any time, if there's any time, I don't care whether it's once a year, I don't care whether it's once every two years, if there's any time that you drink and it gets out of control, and you become dysfunctional in the way you drive, in the way that you interact, interact with your family, in the way that you do your job, in the way that you accomplish your own personal goals. You are an alcoholic. The definition of an alcoholic is any dysfunctionality you have in your personal life, in your family life, in your business life because of drinking. And you need to face that and let Jesus help you to control that passion, and it will probably take 
a battery of helpers. And there's lots of help available. And I want to just share with you from the depths of my heart, if you have that problem, it's one of the most vicious, difficult, strenuous battles that someone can have. Please don't hide. There's help. So there's those two extremes. Jesus turned the water to wine. When the wine ran out, for a Jew within their culture, that was a terribly difficult time. But you know, I want you to understand something. In this passage, much more than the wine had run out. You see, Judaism, those six water pots, those water pots represented Jewish ritual purification. When you would walk into a Jewish home, you would go over to the water pots and, you, and you'd pour some water on your hands. And there was all kinds of rules and regulations about how far up on your wrist that you would come. And the idea was that somehow you were able to cleanse yourself. Somehow you were able to get right with God by all of this cleansing. But all of that ritual, all of that activity produced a terrible ache in the soul of men and women because it could never, never, never forgive. It could never get things totally together. It could never set somebody free. And as John begins his gospel and he talks about the wine going out, he's talking about a Jewish religious wedding time. And he's saying that the wine has gone out of it. There's no more celebration. There's no more joy. There's an ache. There's an emptiness. The wine has gone out. And Jesus is going to change the water of religious legalism. In the idea that you get right with God by obeying rules and regulations, Jesus is going to change that water that can never really bring forgiveness. It can never really cleanse somebody. And he's going to change it to blood wine. Because right at the beginning of this book, it's going to be the Passover time. And Jesus Christ is saying, your obedience, your rules, your religion, all of your rituals, all of your cleansing acts will never satisfy the guilt and the hurt that's in our souls. You'll never be forgiven. The wine had run out. So Jesus, his mother, confronts him. We talked about that passage before. When Jesus says, woman, what do I have to do with you? You notice that in the text? He says, woman, what do I have to do with you? And notice what Mary says. He says, do whatever he asks to do. Jesus said, what do I have to do with you? My time has not yet come. Now, that is the exact opposite of religious legalism. I want to talk to you about something that's really important in that request. Woman... What do I have to do with you? My time has not yet come. Jesus will work in your life and mine at his own time, in his own way, without any obligation. I've been working with an awful lot of people that are seeking to play a game with God where they say, God, I read my Bible so much, I go to church so much, I'm going to witness to so many people. I'm going to memorize so many verses. I'm going to do so many things. And then I'm going to watch you do your thing. I'm going to watch you perform. And I just want to share with you from the bottom of my heart, all of those things are good things. But they'll never make Jesus do one blessed thing for you. Because he will not play that obligation game with you. He loves you too much for that. 
Mary wanted to demand her son to do something. And her son said, there's no obligation. I will do what I do freely and joyously. You say, Dave, why are you a believer this morning? I'm going to share with you why I'm a believer. Because God saw that I was a good speaker. That I would be able to be a good pastor. And that I would be able to help people. And God looked down through the infinity of time. And he says, I need Dave Wurtson. Just like the Marines. We need a few good men. That's what you all think about yourself. You think that about me. It's the normal way for us to think. And I want to share something with you. Jesus did not choose me one split second for any of those reasons. Jesus can take stones and make stones praise him. Jesus can take anything and use it. I am so tired of hearing, oh, we need to get this person saved. What an asset to the body of Christ. Can you imagine what God says? God's going up in heaven. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. It shows you just how arrogant and rebellious we are. God doesn't do anything with us out of obligation. And that's what's wrong with a whole bunch of you. Your whole life is filled with obligation. Mary and I were with somebody yesterday. It's all ought, should, I'm trying, and it's killing the person. Puts them right in the pits, and I'm talking with one person after the other. You can't live that way. How do you live? You just say, Jesus, here's a need. Whatever you want to do. Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. I love these guys. I can hardly wait to get to heaven to meet these guys. They go and fill the water pots with water. Jesus tells them, go and fill them up right up to the brim. So I can see these guys going out. We've got a real Looney Tune thing going on here. The wine is run out, and, he's telling, and she tells us, do whatever he tells you to do, and we're going out filling these pots to the brim. Then they bring these pots. It's hard to carry 20, 30-gallon pots. I've tried that. My dog container is about that heavy, and it hurts. So you come in and the water is sloshing. You ever try to carry water? It sloshes back and forth. All of a sudden it comes all over you. These guys come in and they put these water pots right in front of Jesus. And then he says, okay, take it to the head of the feast. Now I can hear, I, I can hardly wait to get to heaven and listen to the conversation these guys as they carry these water pots to the head of the feast. You know, I don't know whether they duck it. They put a big dipper in there. I don't know what they did. They carry this stuff to the head of the feast, and they've been serving wine all day long for seven days. I don't know how long they've been doing it. And now the, Jesus tells them to take water. And I'm sure they're thinking, we have had it now. Here it goes. You know, that's exactly the way I feel when I go to witness to somebody every time. I feel like, oh, man, they don't want to hear it. They're not going to want to listen. Why present this old story again? Their heart's too hard. You know what Jesus tells you to do? He said, you do what I tell you. He says, you carry it. You carry it. And when I share with you, when I was in college, I heard old Dr. Kinlaw look at us at a college audience. He said, young people, you got to carry it. You got to take it to the head of the feast, 
You've got to obey. And that's when the miracle happens. You see, Jesus tells us to obey. The water turns to wine when you carry it. When this church family starts to obey, when we start carrying the message of the wine of Jesus into other people's lives, that's when the joyous wedding celebration comes back. We close with the miracle. Why did, why did Jesus turn the water to wine? Because Jesus is trying to prove to people that he is the Son of God, the author of creation. It says the disciples saw his glory and they believed. And this was the first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Is it hard for you to believe that Jesus turned the water to wine? I've heard all kinds of scientific explanations about how he did it. I don't care less about it. Maybe that's how he did it, maybe he didn't. I've heard long things. All he did was accelerate the fermentation process. You know, usually the water has to come up through the, down from the sky, up down to the ground, up through the roots, through the vine, out into the grapes. Then it all goes, but he just did it just like that. I don't know how he did it. But I have no problem at all believing that he could do that. You know why? Because the scriptures say that he is the creator. In him, all things were made. Now, when your thing is making stars by just speaking the word, taking water pots of water and turning it into wine is just little symbolic touches to try to give you some proof that he's the son of God. And I hope that you can believe. Because I believe. And Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. When I talked to Joshua and Janae about that story, no big deal. Jesus said he turned the water to wine. The water was wine. Let's move on. Next. Next story. <laughs> and that faith will carry them right into the kingdom of God. It's that faith that gives us confidence in death, gives us confidence with the struggles of life. It's that faith that gives us the joy again. I hope you have that joy today. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is the story. Jesus takes the water of religious legalism, takes the water of religious legalism, and changes it into the joyous wine of forgiveness and mercy and free grace by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from every sin. Father, we just pray that you would help us to celebrate together. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of just laying bare my heart. I thank you, Lord, for so many are entering into the reality of what Jesus can bring. Lord, I want us to become more and more a healing place, a place of honesty, a place where we can share our problems, and yet also a place where we experience the deepest celebrating joys as the Holy Spirit floods our soul and causes us to have those deepest moments of happiness and fulfillment
those little glimpses of heaven, of what it's going to be like to praise you forever and ever. I pray that more and more that we would join hands with all the body of Christ and that we would become excited about taking the wine of the gospel and carrying it for you into all the world. Father, my brothers and sisters this week are going to go out into the secular marketplace and that marketplace is not talking to them about Jesus. It's cussing his name. There's a lot of immorality. There's a lot of conning. There's a lot of vicious jealousy. And I just would pray that you would use this time to strengthen them in the conflict, to help them to stand for the kingdom of heaven. And, O oh Lord, from the depths of my soul, I pray that our ministry would equip them to be good fathers and good mothers and good husbands and wives and obedient to children, respectful people. Oh, Lord, I would pray that you would flesh out Christianity in the marketplace of every one of our lives. And I commit this message to you about the marriage of Cana of Galilee and pray that you would use it for just that purpose to carry the one in the gospel into the darkest corners of the secular marketplace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.